I'll be reading verses 25 through 30 in Matthew 6 as you follow along. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the, lily, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? And you may be seated. We welcome you to this service, especially those of you who are visiting. Uh, for your information, I've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount for a number of sermons, and the last sermon I preached was on um, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, where Jesus tells us to not lay up treasures in heaven, but lay up, excuse me, to not lay up treasures upon earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. He tells us, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He talks about our vision and also the idea of serving two masters, which he says is not possible. You cannot serve two masters. And today's text in verse 25 starts out with the word, therefore, or because of this, now Jesus is making some application. So we're going to be looking at some some applications to some of these principles of, of laying up treasures and so forth that Jesus is making. And I have a little object lesson. I'd like um, help from, from two young men. Do I have two volunteers that would uh, like to help me this morning? Sounds kind of scary, maybe. Well, brothers should be used to working together. How about uh, Michael and Nathan? Uh, would you be able to help me? I'd like you to take your Bibles and go back to the back of the church there, and I'll tell you what to do then. Okay, Sylvan has two cups back there. If you just go there to the sound room, and uh, if each of you get one of those cups... Okay, now I'd like you to bring those cups here to me as quickly as you are uh, able to do that. Okay. Thank you. Now... Nathan, I noticed your hand is dry, but I noticed your hand is wet there a little bit. Uh, what's, how come your hand is dry and your hand is wet? 
Your cup was full. Do you want a towel there to dry it? Does that make a difference? The cup is full. So you're saying it was easier for him to bring his cup than it was for you. Okay, thank you. You can go back to your seats. The moral of that is that it is difficult to carry a full cup. Carrying a full cup is challenging. And this applies to whatever is in our cup. The fact that we will be affected by its contents. Now, Michael's hand got a little bit wet because his cup was brimming full. And I noticed a couple of drips coming out as he was walking up the aisle there. And if you're carrying a full cup, you will be affected by its contents. And it doesn't matter if your cup is full of earthly treasures. You will be affected by that. If your cup is full of heavenly treasures, you will be affected by that as well. Just picture being given a precious treasure to take care of, something that is very valuable for you, and carrying that treasure through a difficult obstacle course. That's what we're doing on this earth. Our life is an obstacle course. We have lots of things to, to go to, to, to um, overcome, to find our way through. And if you're carrying a treasure through an obstacle course, your attention is going to be on that treasure because you want to protect it. You want to make sure that you carry that with you and that you save it until your end. You're going to be focused on what is in your hands. The Bible says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There will your attention be. You're going to be focused on what is in your hand. And when your cup is full, we tend to keep our eyes on our cup rather than on our destination because we want to protect that. So my question to you this morning is, what's in your cup? What is your cup full of? What is capturing your attention? What is capturing the attention of your heart? And along with that, I would say, beware of anything that causes us to take our eyes off the goal. Anything that causes us to take our eyes off of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's our goal. That's where we went to end up. Now, I will say along with that, you've heard many times, it is not hard, or excuse me, it is not wrong to have possessions. It is not a sin to be rich, to have wealth, to have means. But Jesus said very clearly, it is difficult to be rich and to keep our eyes on the eternal goal and to remain committed to kingdom values. The Bible teaches us that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, if you observe people's life, it seems like many people would understand that verse to say that the lack of money is the root of all evil. So therefore, to avoid all this evil, we need to avoid the lack of money. But the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, we hear sometimes that Jesus taught more about money than he did any other subject. It is true that Jesus referred to money a lot. A lot of his parables, a lot of his stories, he talks about 
money, uh, wealth, possessions. However, I believe many of those parables, he was just simply using that as an illustration to teach kingdom values. He used money as an illustration because it was something everyone was familiar with, everyone used, everyone dealt with. So he, in many cases, he used it as an illustration. However, in this passage, in Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching directly about wealth, about possessions, about things we own, and about our attitudes toward them, our views about them. I once heard the comment, someone said, I do not want to live poor and die rich. Now, what they were referring to was investing in a farm or whatever it may be and spending all your life paying off your investments. And finally, at the end of your life, it's paid off and you have all this wealth and your life is over. So I understood what they were saying. I don't want to live poor and die rich. But when I hear that statement, I ask, why not? Why not? Isn't that what Jesus teaches? Our life on this earth is to be an investment in eternity so that when we die, we have the wealth that is laid up for us of eternal values. And in that sense, we can live poor on this earth while laying up treasures in heaven. So like I said, our text today begins at verse 25, giving practical application. In our last sermon, we talked about what is essential, the things of eternal values. We talked about who is essential, which master we're going to serve. And then Jesus makes some practical applications to that about not giving thought to the things of this earth. Now, as we look over this chapter and look back over the, the previous verses, chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, it talks about almsgiving, giving to the poor. It talks about prayer. It talks about fasting. And we tend to think of these as spiritual exercises. And now, all of a sudden, it talks about possessions. And we tend to think that Jesus is switching from the spiritual to the material, to the physical, that he's switching gears. But is he switching gears? You see, we tend to draw a line between spiritual and material. But in reality, they are tied together. And it just flows from one to the other. And they really cannot be separated. Our possessions and what we do with them is a spiritual activity, just as fasting is a spiritual activity. And I told my wife, I said, I, I feel like this sermon is um, it's kind of different than uh, what I would typically preach. Uh, I'm going to touch on some subjects that maybe we will not feel are the most inspirational subjects, but nevertheless, I think there are things that are important to God and things that are good for us to give attention to. Now, I know and I feel that entering the subject of finances and possessions is treading on some pretty dangerous ground. And history proves that. I'll give you some examples. In Matthew chapter 8, right after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus healed people. And when he healed people, what did they do? They just brought all the more people to him to heal. 
He calmed a storm. People marveled at that. He healed two men that were possessed with devils, radically changing their lives. So far, so good. But then those devils went into a herd of swine, and the swine went running into the sea and were drowned. 2,000 of them. That was a significant financial loss. And when that happened, the keepers went running into town, told the townspeople, and these people came out begging Jesus, please leave. We don't want you here. We just lost all of our wealth. Go. You see, when that happened, he was not very well received. Another example, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas had been in Philippi many days teaching the gospel. That was not a problem. People were baptized. That was not a problem. But one day, Paul cast a spirit out of a young girl who was a fortune teller. And her owners lost their source of income. You say, that, the, that girl's owner, he was okay. As long as Jesus did not touch his pocketbook. But as soon as he lost his income, he turned the whole multitude against Paul and Silas, and they were beaten, and they ended up in prison. Finances is a dangerous subject. Well, a couple chapters later, Paul had been in Ephesus for two years, getting along fine. People believed, they were baptized, miracles were performed, lives were changed. All was well until one day, a certain man by the name of Demetrius realized that his financial gain was at stake. People listened to Paul too long. They weren't going to buy the idols he was making anymore. And he stirred up the people, and there was a huge uproar, and Paul left town. So we don't always respond so kindly to some of these teachings, but Jesus did not avoid them, and I don't think we can either. Verse 25 says, Take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Verse 26, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? You've probably heard the little poem that someone wrote. I'm not sure that I can quote it, but it's about the uh, robin and the sparrow. Said the, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings fret about and worry so. Something like that. And then the other bird replied back that I think it must be they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. God cares for the birds. We don't see them worrying. We don't see them fretting. What about us? So this morning, I'm not going to be going through this text verse by verse. But instead, I'd like to look at several practical issues for today. Some financial issues, issues that involve money. And these are issues that are, are prevalent in today's society, and they are issues that, to which some people give a lot of thought to. I'd like to look at the issue of the stock market, the issue of gambling, and the issue of life insurance. Starting off with the stock market, some dangers and concerns some dangers and cautions for the believer. And I'm going to present these dangers 
Uh, I'm not asking you to draw a conclusion. We're, we'll get to the conclusion at the end of this point. But at this point, I'm, I'm pointing out some, some dangers. Number one, investing in the stock market can feed the get-rich-quick mentality. What does the Bible say about this mentality of doing all you can to get all you can as soon as you can? Proverbs 28:22 says, He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye. And in chapter 13, verse 11, it says, Wealth gotten by vanity or by vain means shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. In other words, he who works for what he gets will have the increase, will benefit from the increase. And I believe what these verses is saying is that when money comes fast and easy, it tends to go fast and easy as well. When it comes fast and easy, we don't learn the principles of management that come through experience. And I'll be touching on some of that later. It's basically easy come, easy go. I, uh, another example of that, uh, if a, a family lives in a different country and needs to learn a different language, those who are older need to work a lot harder to acquire the language. A young child can just pick it up real quickly. But if that family leaves while that child is still young, it disappears just as quickly. It came easy, it goes easy. But those who worked hard, it sticks longer as well. Many statistics indicate, for example, that lottery winners lose a lot of what they win within a very short time. If you are familiar with the National Football League, you know that they pay some of the most ridiculously exorbitant salaries found anywhere. And a report by Sports Illustrated once estimated that nearly 80% of NFL players end up broke or under financial stress after they retire, in spite of the millions that they acquired. So the get-rich-quick mentality is not always a healthy thing. Number two, it can also foster discontentment. And another word for discontentment is covetousness. It's easy to get caught up in this trap of just always wanting more and more and more. It can become addictive where you just always want to get the best advantage, continually checking what the market is doing. Contentment is never satisfied by multiplying wealth. It is only um, stirred up. You wish for more and more. Someone said that discontentment makes rich men poor and contentment makes poor men rich. If you're happy, if you're content, you're wealthy. If you're discontent, you're always wanting more. So is discontentment really that big of a deal? Remember the other word for it? Covetousness. What does the Bible say about that? Colossians 3, verse 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. We consider these some pretty serious things. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry is a serious matter. <coughs> Charles Spurgeon once said, 
people have come to me and confessed almost any sin that you can imagine. Sins of lying, stealing, lust, adultery, drinking. He went on to say, but no one has ever come to me to confess the sin of greed or covetousness. And I think that's because that can be a blinding sin. The more you get into it, the harder it is to see it. Some of you have probably heard a story about an American businessman who was traveling in Mexico. And he stopped in this small Mexican coastal village, walked out to the pier along the uh, coast there, along the sea, one day. And as he was there, this Mexican came in with a small boat with some fine large fin tuna in the boat. And the American complimented him on his catch, said, it looks like you have some nice fish there. How long did it take you to catch those? I said, oh, it's just out for a couple hours. An American looked at him and said, well, why didn't you stay out longer and catch more fish? He said, well, this is all the fish I need to support my family for today. It was enough, so I came in. Well, the American said, um, well, you should spend more time. Fish more. Catch more fish. The Mexican said, well, well then what? Well, then you could buy more boats and help hire helpers and catch even more fish and make more money. Mexican said, well, then what? Well, after a while, you could open your own cannery, you could control the product, the processing and distribution and earn more money. Mexican said, well, well, then what? Well, eventually you could move to Mexico City and run your expanding enterprise. Well, then what? Well, the American was getting a little bit frustrated that he wasn't catching on. He said, well, eventually you could sell your company and retire. Well, then what? Well, then you could move to some coastal village and sleep in and fish a little bit in the morning and go home in the afternoon and spend time with your family and spend time with your friends. The Mexican said, well, that's exactly what I'm doing now. What's the point? You know, all that, then what? That's what covetousness can do to us. And I know some of these things may be kind of counter to the, the teaching and upbringing that we've had, but sometimes it's good to just look at the other side of the picture as well. Why all the fuss? Number three, it can also encourage a lazy lifestyle. I know a man who years ago had been doing some investing, playing the markets, and it was going well for him. He was making out very well. And one day he made this comment. He said, people say that money doesn't grow on trees. He said, if I actually had to go out to the trees and pick it off the trees, that would seem like pretty hard work for me. He says, that's what I'm doing is so simple. You see, for him, it encouraged a lazy lifestyle. That man today has no shortage of material wealth. But I would not want to trade places with him. He's living alone. Most of his family has rejected him. He's living in miserable conditions. And he realized that what he was placing value on did not have the value he thought it did. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 says, For when we were with you, we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. The Bible teaches us to work for what we earn. Furthermore, it discourages sacrificial living and sacrificial giving. You see, the more a person has, the more he tends 
to spend on himself. And this, this mentality just kind of grows. You know, he, he may say that, well, if I invest more and I earn more, then I can give more. But that's often not how it works. The spirit of acquisition, the spirit of just getting all you can, is what mammon is all about. We talked about that in the last message. The, the spirit of greed, the spirit of acquisition. That's the world's religion. God wants us to raise our standard of giving rather than our standard of living. And we fail to remember sometimes that giving is investing. We think of giving as, as something being lost. Giving is investing. And we lose sight of that. And I, I hope to touch on that a little bit uh, more later on. And the fifth thing, a fifth danger is that it encourages unethical investments. A person who invests in the stock market generally does it for one reason, profitability. What is going to earn the most? What is going to be the most profitable? And sometimes we fail to realize that the most profitable stocks may not be the most ethical purchases. And if it's not a business that you would feel comfortable owning or managing, stay clear of it, because really, that's what you're doing. So you might ask, are you saying that investing in the stock market is wrong? That's not what I said. What I am pointing out is its dangers. And I think it's summed up very well by a statement that I'd like to read, which I got from BibleResources.org, and try to follow along with this statement. When a man or a group of men have a good and righteous business or company that benefits humanity, yet they lack funding to make that business productive, it creates a need for someone else's help. They have a business, they lack funding, they have a need. If another man or group of men have available funds and would like to invest them for additional income, they have a need. So if these two needs meet, it can be mutually beneficial for both sides. When the one group does the work, the other supports that work with his funds, it becomes mutually beneficial. However, today, Many people invest without any research in the company they are investing in. They do not know if the company policies are based on good biblical principles. They know nothing about how the employees are treated. They know nothing of the history of the company or of the character of the ones running the business, whether they are honest, reliable, or trustworthy. They know nothing of their alliances. Does this business support abortion? Do they support the pornography industry? And so forth. And this is the conclusion. Sad to say, but most of the stock market is run by lust and greed instead of wise investment and helping one another. So those are some dangers that I ask you to consider carefully as you make decisions in this area. Let's move on to the second subject, that of gambling. <coughs> Gambling is something that we as a church take a position against. It's mentioned in our agreements. It's something that all of us as members have agreed to and committed ourselves to avoid. There are numerous different types of gambling. I'll just uh, move over this quite uh, quickly here, mention three of them. 
One is games of chance, uh, casinos, things like that. I'm not aware of anyone here that has made a trip to Las Vegas lately to spend a week in the casinos. And I say far be it from us. However, it may not be as far as we think because we don't need to go to Las Vegas. In reality, all you need to do is pull your phone out of your pocket and it's right there. It's available. We need to be aware of those possibilities and ready to shun them. Another form of gambling is the lottery. The lottery is often run by state organizations and tickets are available in almost any convenience store you step into. Someone has once said that the lottery is a tax on the mentally incompetent. In other words, it's a tax for people who can't figure out that they are simply handing their money away. Now, sometimes we hear in the news of someone who won tremendous amounts of money. And I'm sure that the lottery businesses want to promote those stories. They want everyone to know. What we do not hear in the news is how much money was spent and how many people bought tickets and received absolutely nothing. What we don't hear in the news is how much profit those companies are making. <coughs> in the last fiscal year, the state of Pennsylvania profited more than $1.1 billion from lottery. That's $1.1 billion that people just willingly handed over. Actually, they handed over much more than that. That was the profit. So the lottery odds are obviously stacked in favor of the companies that run them. According to one source, you are 300 times more likely to die from a lightning strike than you are to win the lottery. How many, pe how many people do you know that died from a lightning strike? Not very many. You are 6,000 times more likely to die in a plane crash than to win. And this one I found was kind of unique. You're more than 10,000 times more likely to be born with more than five fingers on your hand or more than six toes on your foot than what you are to win the lottery. Well, a third category is sports betting. And what this consists of is simply putting money on the prediction of who is going to win a scheduled game, a scheduled, a scheduled sport. And this might seem like a small, insignificant thing to do. In reality, it's pure gambling. Nothing more and nothing less. About 20% of all gambling that takes place is sports betting. So it's not a small market. It's a, a rather significant market. And in practice, you might think that this is different because you're applying some logic and you think you know what you're doing and, and you're making predictions and it's based on, on your thoughts. So in practice, you think it's, it's different than other gambling. But in principle, there's no difference between this or playing the lottery or going to the casino. It's all the same type of thing. Sports betting can be a little bit like taking that first cigarette. It can lead you to a place you don't want to go. I'll just quickly go over some of the perils of gambling. 
It is built on the principle of covetousness, the principle of acquiring, the principle of acquisition, getting all you can as easily as you can. First Timothy 6, Paul addresses this to Timothy. He says, but they that will be rich, those who want to be rich, those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare. A snare is a trap. I think this describes gambling very accurately. You fall into temptation, and before you know it, you're in a trap. We'll get to that later. They fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, or some say all kinds of evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, led them from the faith, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. It destroys the concept of kingdom values. Number two, what we're talking about in this passage. Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our hearts are often misguided, and especially as we get involved in some of these forms of gambling. It's going to take our heart after it and mislead us. Thirdly, <coughs> it is addictive. People get caught up in this trap. It's the nature of gambling. You lost, so now you need to recover. Or maybe if I buy one more ticket, and one more, one more, one more, and there's just no end. There are many people who are literally bound by it. Not only is it addictive, it ruins lives. And I'm going over this quite quickly. If you would do a little bit of research, you could find all kinds of stories to support any of these comments. Ruined lives, broken relationships, destroyed health. People are so captivated, they lose their families, their homes. And finally, even winning is losing. <clears throat> now, you tend to think when you win, you win. I read the story of one man who uh, won over $300 million. And as he looks back on that, he said, I wish I would have torn up that ticket instead of turned it in. His family was destroyed. Several of his relatives, his daughter and his grandchildren, or granddaughter, died from overdoses. And he said about himself, he said, I hate the person that I have become. Many people, after they win, struggle with suicide, depression, and so forth. So that is just rather a quick summary. Let's move on to the third category, and that is of life insurance. And in many circles, life insurance is a very um, open subject, a very uh, common uh, thing that is involved in, we are involved in. Our agreements here as a church say voluntary participation in life insurance policies should be avoided. Not too, young, not too long ago, a young person asked me, so what's wrong with life insurance? A very honest question, a good question. And to be honest, I had some vague ideas, but I did not have a clear response ready. And that's a good thing about some of these questions. They make us all think. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions that are on your mind. 
what does the Bible say that may apply to this principle of life insurance? What are some things the Bible says? First of all, the Bible teaches us to put our trust in God. Trust in God. Psalm 27, verse 10, when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And I think a, a very practical application of this verse is when my father and mother forsake me in death, when they die, when they pass on, the Lord will care for me. The Bible teaches very clearly that God will care for the orphans and the widows. It says, I will preserve thy fatherless children. Let the widows trust in thee. So the Bible teaches us to put our trust in God. And there's another verse I'd like to uh, highlight here, but I'll just give you a little bit of interesting trivia before we get into this next verse. The shortest chapter in the Bible, some of you know, is Psalm 117. Who can tell me what the longest chapter in the Bible is? Somebody. Psalm 119. Who can tell me what the middle chapter in the Bible is? Does anybody know? It's right in between there. Psalm 118. Now, uh, this is getting into numbers. It might be distracting for some of you. Some of you might find it enjoyable. Psalm 118 is the middle chapter in the Bible because there are 594 chapters before it and there are 594 chapters after it. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Now, if we add those two numbers together, we come up with another number. And if we just simply put a colon in that number, it gives us not only the middle chapter of the Bible, but the middle verse of the Bible. The very center of the Bible says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. This can apply to many things in our life, but if you want to be in the center of God's will, just go to the center of the Bible and put your confidence in him. Secondly, the Bible warns against putting our trust in man. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8, says, uh, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh. I think of the heath in the desert as a tumbleweed that, that dries up. It's kind of a round bush. It dries up. It falls off its roots, and it just blows across the desert. It rolls and it rolls, and you never know where you're going to find it. Very unstable. That is the description the Bible gives of the person who puts his trust in man. Very unstable. But he goes on to say, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree Planted by the waters that spreads out his roots by the river. He shall not see when heat cometh. In other words, when the dry time comes, it's not going to affect him. Her leaf shall be green. Cursed is a man that trusteth in man. Blessed is a man that trusteth in the Lord. So how does this work? Put our trust in God. Do not put our trust in man. Furthermore, the Bible instructs us to invest in the needs of each other. A mentality of investing in ourselves and in our own future runs counter to this idea of meeting the current needs of others because we always have to keep with our own payments to take, make sure we're taken care of, our future is provided for, 
and it develops a me-first mentality, and then I might help others if there's something left over. The Bible teaches very clearly that our goal should be to reach out to those in need. Now, I'll go through some verses here, try to uh, do it rather quickly. Ephesians 4.28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Deuteronomy 15, 7-11, some very clear verses. By the way, this is God's insurance program. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from the poor brother. But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him. Thou shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Thou shalt surely give him. Thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him. Because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works and in all that thou puttest thine hand unto. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Wherefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy. And also in Isaiah 58, verses 10 and 11, If thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness shall be as a noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul, and draw it, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. This is a beautiful thing about the brotherhood, working together, better than any life insurance policy. The payback in God's program is guaranteed. Now, some people say, but I don't want to be dependent. I don't want to depend on other people. Why not? Is it too hard on your pride to admit that somebody else might have something that you need? I think the Bible teaches us to work together in these ways. Galatians 6.2, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And our sharing programs that we have within the church, and there are a number of them available, is simply an organized way of doing this. There, there's various methods, and this is a method that we have chosen to, uh, to use. So I just challenge you to think carefully about the systems of the world in contrast to God's plan and what he wants to provide through the church. Looking at life insurance, we looked at what the Bible says we can also ask the question, what does, what does evidence say? And there's a number of points here that I could um, mention. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But obviously, insurance companies set the terms to their advantage. They do the math. And they keep the favor on their side. If everyone would keep all the money they paid to life insurance companies, the majority of those people would be much farther ahead. These companies, if they're trying to sell you a policy, will play on your emotions and your desire for financial gain. They'll play on your emotions by promising to provide for the poor widow and her children in the event of your death. 
Well, providing for a widow and orphans is so much more than a check in the mailbox. They have emotional needs. They have fellowship needs. And these are needs that these companies can do nothing about. What a widow needs and what orphans need is a caring brotherhood who will surround them and walk with them through these times. Insurance companies are partial. They will specifically target the young and the healthy because they know that they will tend to get more returns from those people. In fact, if you are up in years and if your health is poor, it may not even be possible for you to get a policy. If you do, it will be extremely expensive because of their partiality. But Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is no partiality in God's program. These companies may fail. Charity never faileth. God never fails. And these companies build on the perspective that the success of one's life can be measured in dollars and cents. And that is directly counter to the teachings of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a, life, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Now, I know that some of the things that I've said here may run counter to our thinking. Some of these things may run counter to some of the things that we've been taught of being industrious and taking care of ourselves and our finances. But the fact remains that much of what Jesus taught ran counter to the thinking of his day. And to be honest, it may run counter with our thinking as well. So I'm not here to advocate laziness or carelessness or wastelessness, but I'm here to challenge you to think carefully. That's what I'm asking you to do. Think carefully. Think about God's approach. Think about Christ's teaching. Think about what he would have you to do. Ask yourself that question. What would God have me to do? And some of these issues are issues that, that some of our young people are facing head-on today. And I know a lot of our young people are missing here this morning because they're with the, uh, the program at Peckway. Some of our parents are missing as well. But I encourage you as parents, I encourage us as parents to discuss these things with our young people. Don't avoid these issues. Don't send them off to find their own way. And don't be threatened by questions. Be open to discussion. Give direction. Often as we seek to give direction, we find it ourselves. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I close with a question. What is in your cup? Where is your heart? And where are your eyes? Let's keep our eyes on the goal, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith.
I invite those of you who care to, to join us as we kneel for prayer. Lord, we thank you again for the teaching that you gave to us when you were here on earth. Thank you for the practicality of your teaching and the way that it just applies to all areas of our life. Thank you that you were not afraid to address issues uh, that even may be counter to the way of thinking of the people of, your t- of, of that time and also of today. Lord, I pray that we would keep our eyes on you, that our hearts could be on heavenly treasures, and that you would guide us in the decisions that we make, that we would be responsible, and that we would be um, accountable to one another and work together to build your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.